Green means good? Green means go? All right. There we go. Good morning. I was helping other people put microphones away and figure all that out, and I've got mine dangling behind me, so we're good to go now. Uh, yeah, no, great to be here. I am Mike Morrison. I'm on staff here working with the Young Adults Ministry, and it's my privilege and my joy to get to bring the Word of God to us this morning. We uh, started this series in the book of James just last week, so we're going to continue on with that today. So if you've got a Bible with you, and I hope you do, turn to James 1. And that's where we're going to be. Uh, we talked last week a little bit about how the book of James is this book that's filled with commands. It's filled with these imperatives. It's filled with these injunctions of things we ought to do. Uh, 54 imperatives out of 108 verses. So on average, it's every other time you're getting told to do something. And one of the things that we were trying to focus ourselves towards is this idea that unless we are recognizing the book of James as a revelation of God's character, we're missing the point. So again, I, just, I hope and I pray that we can keep that in mind and just try to understand that. This isn't a book that is just you know, telling you what to do in some moralistic sense. This is a book saying, look at your God, behold who he is, let it sink into your bloodstream who this God is that we're dealing with. And then go and do likewise. Go and be like your God. And then just, even as we were singing this uh, last song here, I was thinking about the, that, that line, your promises are my delight. I love that line. And the book of James is a book that has many promises in it as well. Many commands, many things that we need to do, but also followed up with promises that God will promise to give wisdom. God will promise to bless. God will promise to give endurance. And we need to see those things just as much as we see the commands because we need to let those things just soak into us before we can even try to live out the things that it's asking us to do. So let's just keep that in mind as we're going through this. Again, that sustained reflection on the character of God. Remember that. Be keeping that in mind because that's what we need. We need an encounter with God. We need his presence. We need to see his face. We don't need to just be told what to do. Both go together, though. All right, we're starting in, what verse are we starting in? Verse 12, I believe. So, we have two really big sections that we're working with here. So we're just going to do the first section at a time, and then we're going to move on to the next section. Uh, we were talking before when we were praying about how last series that, uh, in the pastoral epistles, we did a chapter at a time, and now we're kind of splitting it down to half a chapter at a time, so we feel like we're kind of getting to spend a bit more time there, but there's still tons of stuff, tons of stuff here. And then I was thinking, well, you know, back in the fall, we did that gospel story series where I think Bruce covered the whole Old Testament in half an hour or something. So I guess I should be thankful that we're, we're making good progress. Eventually, sometime down later, we'll be taking it even a bit more slow. But, so we'll try to get through this as best as we can. Uh, starting in verse 12, James writes this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for your word. 
Uh, We're thankful that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And God, we just uh, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. And we thank you that we can trust that through your Bible and through your spirit, you're speaking to us this morning. Lord, I do ask that you can help our hearts to be softened, to be prepared to hear your word, to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, Because just as Kevin read that psalm at the start, unless you're doing the work, unless you're applying this to our hearts, unless your spirit is teaching us and guiding us and convicting us, this is all in vain. We can understand these things right in a cognitive sense, but until you actually work on our hearts and melt our hearts before you, this is all in vain. And so I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts can be acceptable in your sight. And just teach us this morning, God. In Jesus' faithful, strong name, amen. Okay, so this section here, I want to give us some main ideas to notice in this section, because that way, as I ramble through this, we're going to remember these three main things, hopefully. So what's going on in this section? Main idea number one, there is a beyond-the-grave hope and blessing promised to those who love God and endure trial. If you're a note-taker, this is the kind of stuff that you might want to write down, because this is what we need to remember more than anything. So that's number one. Number two, we and our own misguided desires are entirely responsible for our own sin. God is absolutely never to blame for our sin, ever. Because, this is going into three, because far from being the one who makes us stumble, God is actually the source of absolutely every good gift. The source of every good gift, the goodness of his character, suffers no interruptions at any point whatsoever. The goodness of his character suffers no interruptions. James is trying to make that clear. So last week we talked about this uh, bold way that James kicks off his letter. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter all sorts of trials. And it's this difficult uh, command, it's this difficult thing to follow unless we're really kind of taking our time to understand it. And we were talking about how you need to value this endurance. We need to treasure and care about this endurance or else it's going to seem like a raw deal. Unless I'm actually looking at this endurance as something that I want, something that I want God to develop in me, it's always going to seem just like a, a trite little platitude if the word of God is telling me to count it joy because you're getting endurance out of the deal. But if we're valuing that endurance and recognizing that Christ is the one who endured and we want to be like him, then we can actually let that have the power that it's supposed to have. And now James is making a similar point. He's talking about trials again. He's going back to this. He's making a similar point with a bit of a different slant on it. He says, Blessed is the one who remains steadfast, literally the one who is enduring, present tense, the one who is enduring, before it was when this happens to you. He was talking about when this happens to you. If you fall into these trials, when you fall into these trials, consider it joy. And now he's saying, blessed is the one who, this, who is going through this currently right now. The person who's struggling through these trials now, blessed is that person. Now, blessed. What, what are we talking about when we talk blessed? Is this, you know, the spiritual, religious-sounding word that we fill in the blanks with? Bless you, blessings. It's how we sign our emails Sometimes There are a couple of different uh, words in the New Testament used to talk about blessing, but the one that James uses here has to do with the idea of being fortunate, of being privileged, of being happy, even. Of being happy. So, think of the counterintuitive nature of what's going on here. 
the one enduring through trial, currently, presently dealing with this, this one's fortunate. This one's privileged. Why? Because after being tested, this one is going to receive the crown of life. And that simply means the crown that is life, eternal life, is the way he's explaining this here. And one of the things that I I want us to know and to hold on to is that we can never, ever underestimate the role of hope beyond the grave. The role of hope in eternal life as Christians. And that, that might seem like a very, you know, a truism, a very obvious thing to say. We all know that we believe in heaven, we want to go to heaven, that's what we want to do. But the role that this hope plays is supposed to be very important, and it's so, so tempting, I think, for us in our world to think of hope in heaven and eternity as kind of a, a, you know, a flimsy sort of thing. It's kind of a trite thing. When you don't know what else to say, that's what you say. You try to make it work as best as you can in the here and now, and if nothing else, at least there's hope in heaven, and it's kind of a last stop. But to the biblical authors, it never is that way. It's always the anchor which we hold on to that helps us to make sense of any of this stuff here on earth. It's the more real place. It's the more real existence. And I just really think that there would be a lot of power in our earthly witness. You know, people talk about being so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good, and I don't believe that for a second. We should never believe that for a second. We need to sink our teeth into the idea of being citizens of heaven to be of earthly good and to empower our witness here on earth. And I just think that's so, so important. So this one, enduring, is privileged, is fortunate, because he or she will receive this crown that is life. And and notice at the end of this too, James promises this to those who love him. Not to those who pray to prayer. Not to those who had a certain sort of experience. Not to those who have the right external showings of religion or of faith. That stuff can factor in in a different sort of way. But to those who love him, are loving him. So again, this is just the simplicity of James that's so good and so refreshing. This crown of life, those who love him, love God. That's what he's commanding us to do here. Uh, Moving on, we start in verse 13. James then launches into this bit here that you might be familiar with where he says, no one when tempted can say I'm being tempted by God. Nobody can say this. Now, one of the really important things that we didn't really talk about last week, that, and we need to notice this here, is when James is talking about trial, you know, consider pure joy when you fall into trial, these trials produce endurance. When he's talking about trial, and then when he's talking about temptation, the word he's using here is the same word. So that's why in the old uh, King James Version, you have it talking about how consider pure joy when you fall into these diverse temptations. And, and they talk about temptation all the time. It's the same word that he's using here. But that's hard for us. It's very hard for us. Because when we think of a trial, we think of a struggle to walk through. Something to endure. Something to fight through and to make it through. A way of testing. And temptation is something completely different. Temptation is an enticing towards sin. An alluring towards something we shouldn't be doing. That's how we think of temptation. So, okay, and then you think, if James is using the same word here, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean he's kind of like saying something in between these two things and it's some sort of amalgamation of both? No. They're, they're two different meanings. Depending on how you use this word, depending on the context in which it's used, these are two different meanings entirely. Uh, and this is where it really matters for us. 
This is where it really matters and where James is doing something very, very important and profound here. If you remember uh, last week, we talked about the perspective, the way of thinking, the worldview that we have when we're facing trial, how that determines so much. Not emotion, not feeling, considerate joy. We talked about how that is important. And here there's a very similar thing going on. Uh, one commentator writes this. He's, he's talking about how, how this word works here. And why is he shifting from this use to this use here? One commentator says, The various hardships that meet Christians in the world can produce maturity, can produce spiritual perfection, can lead to God's reward if they are endured in faith. However, they can have a harmful effect if met with the wrong attitude. One such wrong attitude, James suggests, is to blame God for the enticement to sin that accompanies trials. So do you see what's going on here? When, when you encounter trial, when we encounter trial, when we face struggle, difficulty, your attitude of response to that situation is entirely going to determine whether you experience it as a testing that produces strength or a temptation to sin. That's just mind-blowing to me. And James is trying to make this point here that our attitude towards it, our response to it is going to wholly determine whether this is testing, trial, or whether this is temptation. And it's not God who's doing the tempting. Same circumstance, two incredibly different, not only two different experiences, but two different outcomes. Two different results in the end. Again, the power of thought, the power of attitude, the power of perspective is one of the things he's getting at. Because look at this. When James is explaining why we shouldn't say that it's God tempting us, so look at those verses. He's explaining why we shouldn't say that. He says, look, God can't be tempted with evil. And what it says literally is God is not tempted of evil. And what it's saying here is if God can't be tempted of evil, he can't be tempted to do evil, so of course he's not going to be the one putting roadblocks in your path wanting to see you slip up. He's not tempted to do stuff like that. That would be wicked. That would be evil. That would be malicious. And he's not going to do that. That would be completely evil. That wouldn't be who he is. Again, the character of God. He tempts no one. Okay, but hold on. Because we can think, well, doesn't God test people? You know, you read in the Old Testament uh, different things that happen to test faith. To see what was going on in people's hearts. It's a frequent thing that happens in the Bible. Doesn't God test people? Doesn't the Bible have plenty of examples where this is going on? And that's the exact beautiful point that James is making here. The beautiful point that James is making here is that in God's grace and in God's goodness, his intent is always, always, always to test, never to tempt. And you might think, okay, what's the difference? But the difference is the heart of God behind this when we're facing trial, when we're facing these difficulties. What's the heart of God behind it? Is he just wanting to make stuff hard for me? No. He's wanting to produce that endurance that makes us like his son. A fatherly discipline, a fatherly care. So what, why does or how does trial turn into temptation? Well, it's us. James says, it's us. It's our own wants, our misguided, perverted desires. And this is James's key point here. We are fully responsible when we give in to temptation because it's our desires at work. 
Uh, Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And lured is actually uh, not putting it strongly enough here. Dragged away is what he's saying. Dragged away, kicking and screaming. It's a violent sort of action. But it's it's not like he's saying this is some sort of external power. Right? He's not saying, okay, there's something out there that's dragging you away and you can't help it. You're just caught up in the undertow. He's saying, no, this is our desires that's doing the dragging. Your own things that you want. You yourself are desiring something that's leading to this dragging. And he's putting the responsibility back on us where it should be. You know, we, uh, Romans 7, there's kind of this famous passage in Romans 7 where it talks about, I do the thing that I don't want to do. And I think far too often we look to that as a write-off. We just see, look, Paul struggled with that too. He did what he didn't want to do. That's what we all do. We all kind of do what we don't want to do. For one thing, that's a very difficult passage. Romans 7 is an incredibly disputed passage in terms of how to interpret it. And for another thing, I think we lose the sense of, you know what, when we're doing stuff, when we're sinning, unless there's a gun to our head and unless we're being forced to do it somehow, which is very rarely the case, we are wanting it. We are wanting it. It's our hearts that are at issue. We are wanting something somehow. We maybe can't explain it. We maybe can't articulate it, but we are wanting it. And James recognizes that. Don't try to blame God. Just because he's sovereign, don't try to blame God. You're wanting it, and you know that you're wanting it. That's what's dragging you away, your own desires here. It's our own wants that lead to this life cycle of sin. That's the picture that he uses. A life cycle, a reproductive cycle of sin in verse 15. If you look in verse 15, the picture here is essentially of desire as the parent, sin itself as the child, death as the grandchild. Desire leads to this sin. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So James is just ratcheting up the difference between trial and temptation here. The first section and this section. He's ratcheting up the difference here. He's talking end game now. He's talking long term end game here. The contrast is as stark as it can possibly get. The one who is steadfast under temptation gets the crown of life and the one who is dragged away by his own desire during temptation ultimately brings forth death. Crown of life, death. He can't make it any sharper. So the question for us is, what is our attitude when we face trials? And again, this is not, not easy stuff. I realize that. Not easy stuff at all. But James is reminding us that we are free by knowing who God is. We are free to trust and know that he's not ever going to tempt. He's not ever going to put us in a situation where we're forced to doubt who he is. We're forced to doubt his goodness. He's not ever going to let that happen. It's always to test. That's always his intent. Because there's always the temptation to blame God when we're facing these things. Always. We talked about that a bit last week. And blaming God is only ever even possible if we're unaware of God's character. And if we're losing sight of it. If we're forgetting what James says, that God is not tempted to do evil, so he's not going to do an evil thing by tempting you, when we lose sight of this goodness of his character, that's the only way that this is possible. And that's why James uh, starts verse 16 with saying, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. Do not be led astray on this matter. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, 
In other words, from the creator of the cosmos, the creator of the universe, the one who made the lights in the heavens. Every good gift comes from him. Not chance, not something else from him. That's who his character is. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's the creator, he's the gift giver, and the goodness of his character suffers no interruptions, no change whatsoever, any point. So James is trying to hammer this home. He's not trying to make it so we feel guilty because we don't recognize this all the time. He's just trying to say, don't be deceived. We need to understand just how good he is or else we're not going to be able to make sense of all these things we face in our daily lives. And James realizes that this is a matter of faith. He really does. He realizes that this is a matter of faith. Not all of us have the natural inclination. Not many of us, if we've lived long enough, have the natural inclination to think God is good all the time. All the time God is good. Simple as that. That's not an easy thing to say and actually believe. He recognizes that. And that's why he's saying, trust this. Trust this. Don't be deceived. Please don't be deceived. I want you to know who this God is. Everything that you ever experience that is good, he's the source of it. He's the giver of it all. And then he caps it off with verse 18. This is a powerful verse here that, that, you know, this is the one that usually doesn't get memorized. If you're kind of memorizing this as a little section. Verse 18. uh, If we're going to talk gift, let's talk about the real gift. Let's talk about the preeminent gift here. Because having willed it, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So you have our desires on the one hand that will drag us into temptation, that our wants, our will, and then God's will, God's desire, on the other hand. He desired to bring us forth, having willed this, having wanted to do this, having wanted to give life to us by the word of truth, the gospel. This is what he wanted to do. So we have to move on to this next section here. But again, these three main ideas of this section— the the beyond-the-grave blessing for those who love God and endure trials, our own desires, not God, to blame for giving into temptation, and then when you think back to the earlier section, God wanting to give us the wisdom to handle trials, and then number three, God's goodness suffers no interruption. And that that's an article of faith that we have to believe in and struggle to believe in. So let's move on to the the next section here. Uh, Verses 19 through, just before the end here, 19 through 25. We were originally supposed to go through the end, but this is this, too much stuff, too much stuff. So, starting at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Always tempted to pr- I always used to do in the prayer after the, the word, but we already did that, so we'll leave that for now. So here we see James is getting more and more and more down to practical business. And this happens throughout the whole book. You kind of notice he's getting more and more down to the nitty-gritty details of life here. 
But we should not see this as a shifting of gears here. We shouldn't see this as an abrupt topic change because this whole section has James working out in practice, in everyday life, how to avoid turning trials into temptations. We keep this in mind and these commands all of a sudden take on a different sort of urgency, a different sort of uh, life of their own when we understand that that's still the context going on. So James starts in verse 19 with giving us advice that applies to everything, realistically, from our business meetings to our family dinners to our marriages to whatever. He gives us this advice that applies all over the board. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And even there, uh, even there, I called it advice. shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't call it advice because this is a command to the church. We need to recognize that. Not a suggestion of, hey, this is how you have a more productive meeting. This is how you can win friends and influence people. This is a command to the church. This is how you are to conduct yourself as the people of God. And where might James be getting these ideas from? You know, is it after he thought really hard and he thought, you know what, I've noticed that what has the most pragmatic value is when people just slow down and listen to each other. Like, is that... I don't think that's what he's doing. If you look in Exodus 34, you can go there if you want to. You don't have to. I'm going to read it right now anyway. But if you, like, flip it in your Bible, hang a left and you can find it. Exodus 34, uh, starting at verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. For James, ethics always consists in living like the God who is good. Never just an abstract ideal, never a pragmatic sort of value. It's always the character of the God who is good. The Lord, who has more reason and right and authority and, reason, and, and just desire to possibly be angry because he's holy, because he's just, and because we're foolish. The Lord, who has more right than anybody, is slow to anger. How much more, then, should we be slow to anger? A Christian uh, writing way back in the 6th century writes this, When it comes to anger, tardiness is the right policy because by the time we get round to it, the reasons may have dissipated. That, that, that's a very kind of practical take on what James is saying here. Slow to anger. It's not worth it to be quick to anger. God's not even quick to anger. How much less should we be? And anger here doesn't so much have to do with... Uh, you know, outbursts of frustration as it does with an overall attitude and disposition of being an angry person, letting it permeate who we are. And don't, don't let that take root, James is saying. Don't be a person characterized by that sort of anger. Be like your God. And the accompanying uh, part of this is, is being quick to hear, slow to speak. And this is nothing new. This is nothing new, this uh, counsel that he gives here. I found uh, one essay by a scholar who takes this idea of being slow to speak, just that idea alone, and he traces it throughout religious history and and philosophical history. And he shows how this has long, long been a part of what it means to be a virtuous person for all sorts of cultures. 
throughout ancient Judaism, classical Greek culture, early Christianity, being reserved in speech has been understood as a mark of wisdom. You want to know what it's like to be wise? Shut your mouth, is kind of what it's saying here. And this is the thing, throughout history, throughout all these different cultures, and it's interesting, like this is the part that really got to me, it's interesting that the idea isn't, okay, if you are wise, if you are a nice person, if you're kind of kind-hearted, then, then you don't have to be reserved in speech. It's just for these kind of loud-mouthed people over here. That's not what he's saying. It's not if you're wise, you get to talk. It's the reserved attitude in speech itself is the mark of wisdom. And there's a difference there. Uh, Proverbs 10:19 says, "When words are many, transgression is not lacking." But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Part of the reason why silence is so important here is because of the relationship that it has to these other things. Being slow to anger and being quick to hear has a relationship to those things. Uh, if, you, if you can't bridle the tongue, which is the language James uses later, if you can't bridle the tongue, what are the chances that you can bridle anger? What are the chances that you can actually listen to somebody else? if you can't even control your tongue and be silent yourself. And my goodness, if you, you, know, if you want to talk about hot-button issues in the church today, you know, we, that's, that's how we kind of determine these things. We look at things that are going on in the broader culture, we think of what the Bible says, and we think, okay, this is a hot-button issue. Like, this needs to rank up there. Big time, this needs to rank up there. We live in a world where we're told to share every fleeting thought that we ever have on a magical little device that we keep in our pockets. Everything. And it's, a, and it's a positively worded ethic. It's not, it's not just saying, okay, this is a hard thing to do in our world. It's the fact that there's other, whatever, services and products that are telling us to not listen to the word of God here. You know, like, you don't think of that. Like, when Facebook says to you, what's on your mind? Do you ever think of it as it's trying to break the rule of the Bible here? Like, that's, like that's actually what's being said here. And we often don't think of how to do this stuff Christianly. And I'm not, I'm not bashing it at all. This stuff is real. Social media is not going anywhere. Internet's not going anywhere. But we are called to think of what does a Christian ethic look like when we partake in these things. Is it just impossible? You know, is that just for ancient times and for other sorts of people, but now it's just, you know, culture's moved on? I don't think so. I think we actually need to be thinking through what it looks like to be slow to speak in a highly connected internet Highly communicative age. Very important thing for us to do. And for some of us, you know, we, we see the results of this, right? For some of us, it's terrifyingly difficult to be alone in our thoughts for a minute. As soon as we have any experience, as soon as we encounter something, as soon as something interests us, we're immediately thinking of how to pass it on and communicate it to somebody else. And it's, just, it's, it's a hard thing. And this is obviously for some of us who are perhaps younger, who deal with this stuff on a more frequent basis. But this is a very real thing that's going to shape us long term. And we need to start thinking about what the Word of God has to say to it. You know, and this is, uh, this is, this is killing our, our ability to be able to reflect. This is killing our ability to be able to pray. And this is killing our ability to be able to hear, to actually listen to people around us. Starting at verse 22, we see this uh, simple yet incredibly challenging command be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And uh, this is such a, a pithy, powerful statement that's said here. You know, don't just hear all this stuff. Actually do something about it. A very powerful statement. Now, we can, 
we can hear this statement in a few ways. And one of the most common ways is, okay, don't just read the Bible, the Word. Actually obey it. Actually do what it says. And that's, that's completely legitimate. That's very legitimate. But if you notice where James first brings in the idea of Word, it's in verse 21 where he talks about this Word of truth that has brought us forth by God's gracious will. In other words, the message of the gospel that gives us new life in Christ. That's the word in this context here. And then again, at the end of uh, verse 21, I, may, I maybe had that other verse wrong, but then again at the end of verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Your lives is what the word means. It's not just a spiritual thing. Your very being is what the word soul means there. And it's only after saying this that James then goes into, but, but don't be a hearer, be a doer. Don't hear this message of the gospel, don't hear this message about what God has done in Jesus Christ and not let it germinate. Not let it take root and actually grow and bring forth the fruit that it's supposed to. And then, and then James explains this for us. He goes on to give this wonderful, convicting analogy about this mirror Anyone who's only a hearer and not a doer is like someone who takes a good, long look in the mirror, takes notice of themselves, and then just walks away without doing anything about it at all. And the purpose of this metaphor here, the purpose of this metaphor is, is the absolute absurdity of this. He's trying to show how ridiculous this is. He's saying, who would ever do this? No one! No one does this. No one stares in the mirror, sees a huge smear of dirt on their face, and then just walks away and, and doesn't do anything about it. No one does that. And then he's saying, it's, it's so ridiculous because no one would do that, and if they did do that, then what in the world was the point of looking in the mirror? And that's the question. What's the point of looking in the mirror? What's the point of hearing the word of truth if you're just going to walk away unchanged? What's the point? You're just as stupid as someone who's looking in a mirror, seeing a smear of dirt on your face, and then just walking away and not even noticing or doing anything about it. It's ridiculous, he's saying. It's absurd. Because without a doubt, when we encounter the word of truth, we see stuff on us. We see dirt on our face, so to speak. You see things that you need to take care of. We all do. You see things that you need to take care of. It reflects your own stuff back at you. It reflects your own stuff back at you that you need to deal with. And it's not the mirror's fault. The mirror's just doing its job. The mirror's just reflecting. That's what the word of truth is doing here. The word of truth is just reflecting back what we need to do. It's not, it's, it's not to blame for being honest in its reflection. Now we, t- we need to do our job in responding to it. It did its job. Now we need to do our job. Then James compares this with the one, compares this picture with the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres. Now, with with all this talk about endurance that's already happened, you might think that James is coming back to this idea when he when he says perseveres. But the word here has to do with remaining in this law of liberty. You're you're stooping down. You're peering into this perfect law of liberty and you're staying there. You're saying, I'm not going to move a muscle until I figure out what this is about. That's the picture there. He's he's using this word that talks about stooping down, staring into it. This person, James says, 
will be blessed in their doing. Verse 25. And what's so, so encouraging about this is that so far, a lot of the talk about about blessing and reward has been long-term. You know, down the road, producing endurance, down the road, crown of life. But here James says, in their doing, they will be blessed. They will be fortunate, privileged. They will be happy. And this is a gracious promise. The the fear of doing the word is taken away. I don't don't know if you hear it like that. That's how I heard it when I was praying through it this week. The fear of doing the word is taken away because we fear this a lot. We fear this a lot. We feel convicted. We see something in Scripture. We we, we sense God telling us something. We have a Christian spirit-filled friend who's telling us something, perhaps pointing us in a certain direction. We feel that spirit conviction. And it's scary. Absolutely it is. We sense God urging us to deal with something and then there's this fear. I couldn't possibly do that. It's too much. It's too scary, too humiliating, whatever. It's just too much. And then James encourages, you will be blessed in your doing. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. You will be blessed in your doing. In closing, I I just want us to Rest in and be encouraged by what James means when he talks about this perfect law of liberty. Such an interesting little phrase that he says there. You know, because we, we hear words about law and we think, okay, legalism. He's talking law. He's talking legalism. He's talking rules. We think of statements from the Apostle Paul where Paul says, you've died to the law. You're not under the law. You know, that's, that's some of the resonances that come to mind. And then all of a sudden, James comes along here and he says, you know what, you'll be blessed if you stare into this law of liberty. And if we're not careful, we can think, okay, you know what? Some of these people are right. James is the legalistic one. That is what he's actually about after all. But notice what he calls the law. He calls it the law of liberty, but he also calls it the perfect law. Perfect has to do with the idea of being complete, being fulfilled. The end, the goal. It's the exact word that he's using here. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Romans 10, verse 4, Paul says, Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. The same word, the perfection of the law, end of the law, the goal of the law. So what James is saying here then is that this law that we're to look into and to be blessed in doing is the fulfilled in Christ law. And this is powerful and this is important because James is saying this. He's saying that there's so much freedom, there's so much blessing, there's so much life in this only on the other side of the gospel and what Jesus has done. And that's so freeing. You know, because I, I hear this and I think, okay, when I look into the law of liberty, I don't feel very blessed. I feel burdened. And I feel overcome by all the things I ought to do and I'm not doing. And I'm not able to even do. 
But when James calls this the perfect law, he's saying, no, 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 it's not you just doing this. You're looking at this, you're understanding this through the lens of the gospel and what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross and in the giving of the Spirit. And it's just such a powerful encouragement, and that's why he's free to call it the law of liberty, of freedom. We're, we're about to uh, take communion, and this, there's, there's just connections all over the place to this, because in Jeremiah 31, it talks about how God one day is going to give a new covenant. And this new covenant is when he writes his law upon people's hearts. No need for the law of the letter, because the law is going to be on your hearts, Jeremiah says. And then in the Gospels, when we see Jesus instituting uh, a communion, the Last Supper, He says, this is my cup in the new covenant. This new covenant has arrived. This law that's on the heart, this law that's not of the letter, has already arrived. So when we take communion and we think about what that means to be people of the new covenant, let's let's think of that. It's no longer a law of sin and death. It's a law of liberty that we get to look into. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that you're teaching us. And Lord, I recognize that only you know of the things that people here need to hear. Only you know the, the things that people here need to be freed from and encouraged in and, and just strengthened in. And you know the things that people need to be convicted of and things that they need to change and things where they need to look into this mirror and actually do something about it. You know all that stuff. I have no idea, Lord. And so I do ask that you can be the one who builds the house and you can be the one who does the convicting work right now. Lord, we need you to do that. If you don't do that, this is all hopeless. And I just pray that our hearts can be soft to hear your word and and apply this and and that you can test us in these ways. And that as we go about this week and as we meet the, the struggles, big or small or whatever, please, Lord, give us the strength to not doubt your goodness. And and even if some of this stuff doesn't make full sense to us, please at least let us be the people who know you as the giving, 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 generous God who gave the word of truth and brought us to new life through the gospel and the God who gives wisdom graciously to those who ask him. Help me to learn that. Help all of us here to learn that. And just help us to behold you and to taste you and to know who you are even now as we partake in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.